Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about how neoliberalism was born, how it's been maintained, and why it is reasonable to believe that it is on the verge of collapse. Before we get started, though, I have some thoughts on this because we can't get right into neoliberalism and understanding why it's reasonable to think that it's going to collapse without a little bit of context. Longtime listeners may know that I'm a big fan of context. I, I usually tell stories where I have to back up, you know, several weeks, several months, maybe even a few years to give context. For this one, we have to back up about 130 years. I want to talk about the macro version of macroeconomics, the, the, the economics that spans eras, not just years or, or even a decade. And the reason for this is because once you back up far enough, you begin to see these very predictable cycles emerging in our history, and not just our history, but that's what I'm focusing on for today. So speaking of trickle-down economics, we usually think of that as stemming from the 1980s, that being a, a Ronald Reagan policy, but it turns out that is not where it came from originally. It came from at least the 1890s under President Harding. And so since, since we're taking a, a look at history in wide swath, so looking at eras, I'm looking at the, the range between 1890, this introduction of, they didn't call it trickle-down economics at the time, but it was the same idea, and it was the beginning of those three decades that created the Gilded Age right before the Great Depression. So, of course, the failures of these sorts of you know, practically laissez-faire, uh, you know, free markets, uh, you know, tax cuts for the rich kind of economics very much led to the crash, the Great Depression, and this uh, severe economic hardship is one of the factors that helped spark fascism. And not just in Germany. There was a, a Nazi rally in Madison Square Garden in 1939 because we were still struggling to come out of the Great Depression. And so then you get, of course, World War II and FDR's New Deal and, and a, a transformational age for the economics of the country. We, we turned to what's called Keynesianism, which means that uh, the government takes a strong role in infusing the country with cash when the economy is down. And then the idea was to pull back on cash when the economy was going really well so that it didn't actually overheat. And uh, so that seems like a good idea. But as we'll hear in today's show, the politics of that don't always work out. You know, economists sitting around a table can all agree, okay, we need to uh, raise taxes. But then when you present that to a voting public, it doesn't necessarily work out so well. So after a good long time of the New Deal era and the economy going uh, relatively well, we ended up running into some problems with that Keynesian idea because they weren't able to raise taxes the way they wanted to at the time that was needed. We ended up with stagflation and the, the problems that we, you know, the economic problems we associate with the 1970s, which created sort of similar to how the Great Depression created a crisis that could be taken advantage of by progressives to wildly change our economic uh, situation. 
the stagflation of the 70s created a, an opportunity for neoliberals to take control and present a new story of how we should run our economy. And that ushered in the Reagan revolution. And since then, we've been playing by a completely different set of rules than we had been under the New Deal era. And so then the pattern begins to repeat. After a few decades of trickle-down economics, giving all the money to the rich, by the time we get to the 2000s, we're in the middle of the second Gilded Age. And unsurprisingly, it all comes crashing down with the Great Recession, which, I think you know where I'm going with this, is one of the factors that sparks a new wave of nationalism and fascism. Again, not just in America, but elsewhere too. And so if you see this pattern and you kind of understand where we are, then you begin to understand that it's really likely that we are on the cusp of a new progressive era led by people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. So that's the overview. But, you know, let me let me put a little bit more meat on these bones. When I said that after the Reagan revolution, we were playing by a completely new set of rules. In, in political terms, that means the Overton window had dramatically shifted. If you wanted to make a metaphor out of it, you could say, like, it's a, it's sort of the same game, but on a completely different field. Like, we, we'd been playing the game on FDR's home turf for decades. And so the rules were sort of set and the debate was had within the confines of the foundation that had been laid by FDR and the New Deal. After the Reagan revolution, we are now on a new playing field. The rules have changed, the debate has shifted, and we are on Ronald Reagan's home turf. So we're sort of having the same debate, but it's in a different place. We tend to think of you know political positions as being fixed, and then they just fight amongst themselves, but a, a shift in thinking so dramatic as as from the FDR era to the Ronald Reagan era, it, it's like the definition of common sense has changed. That that's the the dramatic level of shift I, I'm trying to describe. And the same thing happened when FDR came in. The, the rules changed so much that the Republican Party, which had been the party of trickle down economics and you know fighting for the rich and all of that. They became something completely different after the FDR revolution and the New Deal era, and the Republican Party became something that we could not recognize today. Have a listen to this quick clip. Well, I did not expect this. The National Republican Party has published an official policy document showing that the GOP really might be more than a gaggle of serve-the-rich plutocrats and wacky, trumped-up right-wingers. Just when you thought the party was consuming itself in the know-nothingism of its presidential pretenders and the recalcitrant do-nothingism of its Congress critters, out comes a sign of sanity. In this 18-page manifesto, the party proclaims that, quote, our government was created by the people for all the people, and it must serve no less a purpose. All the people. Forget pontifications by Wall Street billionaires dividing America into virtuous creators, like themselves, and worthless moochers, like you and me. This document abounds with commitments to the common good. Quote, America does not prosper, it proudly proclaims on page 3, unless all Americans prosper. 
Wow, that's downright democratic. And how's this for a complete turnaround? Labor is the United States. The men and women who, with their minds, their hearts, and hands, create the wealth that is shared in this country, they are America. Holy Coke brothers share the wealth? Yes, and how about this? The protection of the right of workers to organize into unions and to bargain collectively is the firm and permanent policy of the Republican Party. Eat your heart out, Scott Walker, and you other labor-bashing GOP governors. The document also supports our public postal service, the United Nations, equal rights for women, expanding our national parks, vigorous enforcement of antitrust laws, and raising the minimum wage. New enlightenment in the grand old party. Hallelujah. This is Jim Hightower saying, can all this be true? Believe it or not, yes it is, except it's not new. This document is the Republican Party platform of 1956. So Eisenhower Republicans were then basically what Democrats are today. And the FDR New Deal Democrats were far to the left and being supported and bolstered by the socialist and communist parties of the era. So then we fast forward to the Reagan era and we actually see that there's an equal and opposite scene playing out during the first democratic presidency in the in the post-Reagan era. Clinton proclaiming that quote the era of big government is over and famously ending welfare quote as we know it were both signs that the Democratic Party had become something that would be unrecognizable to FDR Democrats. And, you know, many criticize Clinton, Bill, and Hillary, or, or just the institution of the Clinton presidency, for pulling the Democratic Party to the right, turning it into sort of a Republican light party, dependent on Wall Street for campaign contributions and all of that. And I have come to have a more forgiving perspective on the Clintons uh, in that era, because I believe that Clinton, his actions, the presidency in general, were more a product of his time, more a reflection of the mood of the country than anything else. The mood of the country created Clinton rather than Clinton creating a new mood in the country. And now, j just one last thing. Let's take a look at electoral politics through the lens of this discussion of political and economic eras. So FDR was elected at the end of the Gilded Age when that had all come crashing down. The New Deal era lasts until stagflation in the 70s when there's a, a newfound hunger for a new direction. And Reagan comes in and fulfills that desire for a new direction. He is ushered in and brings a totally new paradigm to politics. Reagan conservatism is unrecognizable to Eisenhower Republicans. And in this new paradigm, Reagan crushes one of the most progressive candidates since FDR in his re-election bid, Walter Mondale. And then Bush Sr. crushes the relatively progressive Dukakis. And this signals, okay, the progressive era, era is, is truly dead. And the only way for Democrats to win again is with this Clinton centrism, which appeals to the mood of the country, but tries to put a human face and, and you know, a, you know, a kind slant on this hardcore conservative economics. 
And then he also plays the saxophone, which I guess helps. And so that is the strategy that Clinton uses to win in the Reagan era, the Reagan neoliberal era, just like Eisenhower progressive republicanism is what it took for Republicans to win in the FDR New Deal era. So here we are again, back at the beginning of the cycle. Trickle-down economics, gilded age, fascism on the rise, calls for a new progressive era in the form of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and Jeremy Corbyn and young people having a more favorable view of socialism than capitalism. We are at the end of a conservative era and on the cusp of a new progressive era, if we can avoid falling all the way into fascism and world war, of course. So, so, okay, now actually the last thing. Centrist Democrats fear that an Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders candidacy will result in what they refer to as a Mondale-like landslide loss for Democrats and win for Republicans. This is because they completely fail to understand the cyclical mood of the country and our current place in history. The lesson they learned is, if you are too progressive, you will lose badly. The real lesson is, Mondale lost in a landslide because he was trying to be progressive at the beginning of the conservative era. Bernie and Warren don't have that problem. They're trying to be progressive at the end of the conservative era. Their timing is it's way less like Mondale and more like FDR, who won four elections in a row, not just because he was a great politician and people loved him, but because his timing was right. He entered the scene at the end of a conservative era when the country was hungry for a new direction, and he brought it to them. So, you know, if you've got 15 or 20 minutes to spare and a, a moderate, you know, Democratic voting friend or, or family member who thinks that a vote for a, a Biden or a Buttigieg or someone like that is the safe bet, tell them this story and explain that, no, 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 the country is ready for change. We do not want Republican light anymore. We are ready to usher in a new progressive era. And now with that context of the rise and falls of political eras, let's move on and hear about the rise and inevitable fall of our current political era. Clips today come from Pitchfork Economics, On the Media, The Ezra Klein Show, This Is Hell, and a talk by David Kotz. You had the best definition of neoliberalism yeah. that we'd come across, this idea of reducing everything to competition. If you could go in, I guess, starting point, tell us from your perspective what neoliberalism is, and then uh, we want to get into where it came from. It's an extraordinary thing. You know, the, the cleverest trick the devil ever plays is pretending he doesn't exist. And this is what neoliberalism has done to great effect over many years. When the doctrine was first hatched, particularly in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, people were quite happy to call themselves neoliberals. But gradually, that name disappeared. And they almost pretend that there is no such thing. And yet it has become the dominant doctrine 
that governs our lives. And we call it other things. We call it Reaganomics or we call it Thatcherism. Depending which country we live in, we just think that it's sort of spontaneously emerged, but it's not. It's a very deliberate and um, well-crafted ideology that's been worked on by many people over a long period. Started with um, the work of people like uh, Friedrich Hayek and Ludwig von Mises. And basically, it's a doctrine which says that competition is the defining feature of human life and that we are fundamentally selfish and greedy, that these are good things because our selfishness and greed can be harnessed to make us all richer, that uh, society should really be governed by buying and selling and our interactions should more or less be reduced to commercial interactions. And by that means, we can, it claims, make the best decisions because what buying and selling does is to create a hierarchy of human worth. We can determine who are the best and most worthy people And there's a very easy way of determining that because they are the richest people. And the people at the bottom of the heap, the poor, well, they are inherently undeserving. How do you know? Because they are poor, because they have failed in the great human competition. And anything that tries to interfere with the discovery of that natural order through buying and selling, such as government intervention, regulation, taxation, trade unions, That must be stamped out to allow the whole of society to become a kind of market. That's the theory. That's how it's supposed to work. And apparently that is supposed to deliver us from bureaucracy, from red tape, from chaos, and create a kind of utopia in which the invisible hand of the market ensures that we live in the best of all possible worlds. The reality is that it doesn't quite work out like that. (laughs) (laughs) And to be clear, this is not a narrative that emerged organically. It was intentionally designed as a counter narrative to um, what they feared was this, you know, scourge of socialism, uh, either the kind in in, uh, Stalinist Russia or the democratic socialism that we were seeing in uh, Europe. Yes, that's correct. I mean, when Friedrich Hayek wrote his book, The Road to Serfdom, in 1944, he basically considered any attempt to intervene in markets or to create welfare systems, social security systems, was the slippery slope towards totalitarianism. And that even such apparently mild interventions as the US New Deal or the beginnings of a uh, social democratic welfare state in the UK would inevitably lead to Stalinism or Nazism or other forms of totalitarianism. And this sort of slightly extreme and crazy belief, which was really very marginal to begin with, attracted a lot of extremely rich people because they thought, well, you know, a world in which there's hardly any tax, hardly any regulation, no trade unions. That's a great world for millionaires. Yeah. That's a great world for corporations because we can be free. So they started talking about freedom, but they were very careful not to specify freedom for whom. Now, there are many kinds of freedom, 
which we can exercise without intruding on anyone else's freedom, freedom of speech being a classic example. If I speak freely, it doesn't stop you from speaking freely. Well, at least if I ever shut up, it doesn't. Um, but there are other freedoms which intrude on other people's freedoms. So, for instance, if I say I want to be free from labor regulations, I don't want um, um, my workers to impose on me with their demands for holidays, for sick pay, for weekends, for contracts, for pensions, then that freedom which I've acquired is actually a massive cost and an imposition upon my workers who then find themselves without economic freedom, without security, without a lot of the good things in life. Their freedoms have been restricted. If I am free to pollute the river or to pollute the atmosphere, other people are not free from the impacts of that pollution. In fact, that pollution can be a terrible imposition on the lives of other people. If you pour your toxins into the groundwater, we are not free from poisoned water. So your freedom detracts from our freedom, and it's a zero-sum game in cases like that. But they were very careful not to say whose freedoms they were talking about. They were just saying freedom, as if it makes us all free. And so with the support of some of the world's richest people, Hayek and von Mises and, and many others started to get together to form what has been described as a sort of neoliberal international. The Mont Pelerin Society in 1947 was where it began, but it quickly proliferated into a massive network of think tanks, of academic departments, of journalists, all sponsored by these immensely rich people to promote these rather wacky ideas, and to bring them slowly towards the mainstream. And not only were they promoting them, they were refining them and finding new ways to tell the story so that it became more acceptable to people. It sounded more like common sense and less like something completely crazy. And gradually, this completely wacky idea becomes more and more accepted within mainstream media, within mainstream society until people say, oh, well, yes, maybe that's, that's sensible. And then when Keynesian social democracy starts to run into big trouble in the 1970s, the neoliberals were able to come forward with this massive network they'd created, this sort of international network, and say, we've got the answer. We've got this whole new story which you can adopt. And people like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan immediately pounced on this and said, yes, this is the answer. And by then it wasn't called neoliberalism. It wasn't really called anything. It was just, it was as if it were a description of a natural process like Darwinian evolution. This is just how society works. And that explains its great power. They make it sound as if it's not a doctrine at all, as if it's not an ideology at all, as if it's a description of society. Yeah, it's Econ 101. That's what they tell us here. Our friend Yuval Harari has, I think, quite rightly pointed out that the iron law of history is that these meaning systems, these narratives, these what he calls these intersubjective realities are always anchored by one of two claims, either God says or it's a law of nature. Yes. And neoliberalism and neoclassical economics adopt the latter. They basically assert that these are immutable natural laws, that this is just the way it is. 
and it's highly misleading. I mean, they take a basically Hobbesian view of humanity, which is that we are fundamentally selfish and greedy. But what we've had in recent years has been a vast amount of science investigating just those questions. You know, what are our fundamental values? What are our dominant values? And it's been in, in neuroscience, in social psychology, in anthropology, in evolutionary biology. And remarkably, all those different disciplines have come to very similar conclusions that while the majority of people do have some selfishness and greed in us, those are not, for most of us, our dominant values. Our more dominant values, our community feeling, our empathy, altruism, kindness towards others, kindness towards our family, kindness towards our neighbors, kindness towards people in general. And actually, we think very poorly of people whose values are primarily selfishness and greed. But there are outliers. There are some people whose values are dominated by selfishness and greed. And unfortunately, a lot of them are in charge. Broadly speaking, <laughs> yeah. yes. broadly speaking, we are a society of altruists governed by psychopaths. Yeah. Sociopaths make up about 3% of the general population. About what percent of corporate boardrooms, I think it Nick? was like 25%, wasn't it? <laughs> it's just so depressing. <laughs> Another potential link from the past to the present, the increasingly effective call to collective action. Because, though conventional wisdom says that Roosevelt bestowed workers with a voice as yet another New Deal remedy, an elixir from the Oval Office, Jane McAlevey, writer and longtime labor organizer, explains that that's not how it happened. Yeah, no, that's a little upside down. When American workers won the National Labor Relations Act, that was because in 1933 and 1934, in the beginning of 1935, American workers waged extraordinary mini general strikes all over the United States to put the kind of pressure on FDR to give American workers the right to pull up as legal equals to the bargaining table with their employers. That was not given on high from FDR. In fact, a lot of the profound changes during the civil rights movement happened for the same reason. We have the tapes that show President Johnson on the phone with Martin Luther King. And I'm going to do my best to get other men to do likewise, and I'll have to have y'all's help. I never needed more than I do now. Well, you know you have it, and just feel free to call on you better go create a lot of holy hell down there in the South so that I have hmm. the ability to do it. That's exactly what was happening in the 1930s in the New Deal. When FDR took over, he did a bunch of other things that were urgent and important. The Civilian Conservation Corps, the Works Progress Administration. I mean, there's a very long list of things that happened in the first hundred days. The National Labor Relations Act was not in the first hundred days. It was 1935 in the summer, two years into it, right? And it happened as a result of workers standing up for themselves and creating a crisis through massive strikes. But in the years since the New Deal, we've seen labor decline in prominence. I mean, starting with the Taft-Hartley Act, right, in 1947, which uh, restricted the activities and the power of the unions. You have right-to-work laws, which undermine the very structure of the unions. So why are we seeing all these strikes now? 
I think you're seeing the strikes now because we are at the same level of grotesque income inequality that we were in during the Great Depression. You had 25% of America unemployed in 1932. What's similar and different in 2018 when the strikes begin in 2019 and and heading into 2020 in this crucial year is that we definitely have 25% as an index of misery. It's that corporations are more sophisticated today. So it's not rampant unemployment. It's rampant underemployment. What American workers transformed in the auto plants in 1936 and 1937 by walking out in massive strikes were conditions that look a lot like the average Amazon warehouse job today, where workers are paid substandard wages, don't get bathroom breaks. Workers are working two jobs, two and a half jobs, just to keep up and try and pay the bills. And that level of frustration is hitting a wall in this country right now. I have to ask you, though, again, why strikes, given the state of the unions? In fact, you've noted that the word strike itself is on the rise. Yeah. The strike that really began all of the strikes we're seeing was, in some ways, the very bold action taken by the teachers in Chicago in 2012, the first really big strike in decades. Negotiations with public school officials now entering a second day. Mayor Rahm Emanuel saying teachers are making the wrong choice to strike with 350,000 students paying the ultimate price. And that strike kind of reawakened a lot of people. It began to do what organizers call raising the expectations of American workers, in Mm -hmm. that case teachers, that they could fight and win and demand more. And they did in Chicago. Many people at the time were talking about how they were overpaid spoiled brats, and so on. And yet, the public did seem to stand with them. When we were talking about what happened from Taft-Hartley until now, Ronald Reagan comes in, essentially fires 12,000 striking workers in the early 1980s to let Americans know you go on strike, you're going to get fired. They are in violation of the law, and if they do not report for work within 48 hours, they have forfeited their jobs And will be terminated. And that really brings down strike activity for the next 25 years or so. There had been this narrative for 30 years that the public wouldn't stand with people when they went on strike and got fired. So when the Chicago strike happened and you saw the outpouring of support, it began to re-raise workers' expectations that, hey, even though they feel really beaten down, they actually have a lot of public support. And when you fast forward to West Virginia, they were the first ones to walk out in this new era of all the strikes we're seeing. When I interviewed a lot of those workers, one, they had met the Chicago teachers. They actually went to find them and seek them out. And two, the place where a lot of them met was the 2016 Sanders campaign. Hmm. And if you look in West Virginia, he won every single Mm -hmm. county. And a lot of these young teachers, when Trump won said to themselves, wait a minute, we built an amazing movement. What are we going to do now? And then right at that moment, the state legislature in West Virginia announced that they were going to take huge cuts. They were going to have to pay 200 to $400 more per month for their health care, and they were going to get a 1% raise. Hmm. And they said, that's it. We're out of here. And they began to do real grassroots organizing work, teacher to teacher, bus driver to teacher. And when they walked out 
it was everyone. I mean, they were drawing on the history of the United Mine Workers. They were drawing on a proud working class tradition in West Virginia. But they have now set ablaze the whole country, a string of workers walking off the job and winning in the education sector, then against the Marriott hotels, then again stop and shop this spring, enabled the General Motors workers to say, forget it. George, let's turn to narrative. You have this amazing new TED Talk uh, out where I think you do this wonderful job of characterizing the existing narrative and uh, suggest a new one. And maybe for our listeners, can you do that? Well, I I guess start with the, the importance of narrative. Yeah. So, yeah, the first thing to say is that we are fundamentally creatures of narrative. You know, when we try to interpret the world, we don't do so as scientists. You know, we like to think of ourselves as having these rational, empirical minds, and we analyze the data and use it to try to work out what's happening. But you can't actually live like that. You know, I, I, I'm speaking as someone who it tries to be an empiricist. I've got a science degree. I love science. I love facts and figures. But, you know, I recognize that I don't live by them, and no, nor does anyone else, because if we tried to do so, the complexity of the world would simply overwhelm us. So instead, we use shortcuts, and those shortcuts are what we call stories. We tell ourselves stories, and we listen out for other people telling stories, which tell us where we are, how we got here, where we might be going, which give us a sort of rough approximation of what's going on in the world, because otherwise it's just like these massive data streams coming at us every moment of the day, and our brains cannot process the amount that's coming at us. We have a sort of predisposition to listen for stories, but not just any story. There are a number of basic plots that appeal to our minds with particular force, and that remarkably, there is one that has worked again and again in politics and religion to the extent that I think you can quite comfortably say that a political or religious transformation is unlikely to happen unless it can tell a new and gripping story with this narrative structure, with this basic plot line. And the plot line is what I call the restoration story. And it goes like this. Disorder afflicts the land caused by powerful and nefarious forces working against the interests of humanity. But the hero or heroes confronts those powerful and nefarious forces against the odds, overthrows them and restores harmony to the land. That's a basic structure of the restoration story. And we all know these stories. If you read the Bible, if you've read Harry Potter, if you've read the Lord of the Rings, Narnia, uh, uh, again and again, that plot line comes up. It's a very powerful and very common plot line. But it's also the plot line of just about every successful political or religious transformation there has been across millennia. And it's a plot line which was used extremely effectively by the neoliberals. And that was a big key, I believe, to their success in dominating so much of the world's thought and action. The story the neoliberals told, it went like this. 
Disorder afflicts the land, caused by the powerful and nefarious forces of the overwhelming state, which by intruding into our lives and taxing and regulating, crushes individualism and opportunity, and therefore diminishing the scope of our lives. But the hero of the story, the freedom-seeking entrepreneur, confronts those powerful and nefarious forces, and against the odds, by creating markets where none existed before, rolls back the state, overthrows those forces, and restores harmony to the land in the form of the universal free market. We're creating opportunity and freedom where there was none before. That's the story. And it's very effectively told in many different forms, in long form, in short form, in books, in pamphlets, in videos, in political speeches, again and again and again, it's that narrative which comes up. And so when people were listening for a new story, after the Keynesian narrative began falling apart, you know, after the Trente Glorieuses, as the French call it, from 1945 to 1975, when everything seemed to be going right, there was high rates of economic growth and everyone had a job and there was lots of investment in public services and this sense of no one being left behind. And then after 30 years of that, it all started to fall apart a bit. Things went badly wrong. Inflation and capital leakage and many other issues afflicting that Keynesian model. People started listening out for another story. And the neoliberals had spent that 30 years working up their story until it was ready to be told very simply, very powerfully. They knew exactly what they were doing. And they knew they almost created a sort of algorithm for political transformation because they had those vast resources. They had so many people working on it who were paid to work on it through the think tanks, through the academic departments, within the neoliberal newspapers. They refined it and refined it until they knew that they were going to succeed. You know, then neoliberalism hit the buffers big time in 2008, where it basically just collapsed intellectually. It was exposed as intellectually bankrupt, as socially bankrupt, environmentally bankrupt, and above all, plain bankrupt. (laughs) 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 And, you know, you would have thought, right, this is the moment at which the new narrative takes over. So we all said, right, we need something completely new. And it is, uh, oh, uh, hmm, uh, this, uh, oh dear, we don't have a new story. And so we face this extraordinary situation where, you know, it's now 11 years since the collapse of Lehman Brothers. And we're still stuck with that failed catastrophic ideology. And we're stuck with it because we haven't replaced it with a new story. Yeah, and the best alternatives are either a kinder and gentler form of neoliberalism (laughs) (laughs) or trying to go back to Marxism or... Or Keynesianism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Exactly. And, and, and one of the rules of politics is you, re- unless you're a fascist, you can't go back. For some reason, the fascists can keep reinventing <laughs> fascism. I, I don't know why. <laughs> but you can't excite and galvanize people unless you've got a new story to tell. 
Well, we got half the story. They've identified the villains. I mean, I think that's why Occupy Wall Street captured the imagination. It's where uh, Bernie Sanders has gotten a lot of his support. To some extent, even even Trump, <laughs> when he ran, you're identifying the villains. They just don't have the second part of the story, which is no, how we're I, going. That is half the story. You, you are right. But of course, you know, it is meant to be a restoration story. It is meant to put things right. It is meant to bring, return, heart, restore harmony to the land, but in a new way, in a way which hasn't been done before. And in fact, you know, I think we've got more than half. We've got other little fragments of that story. There's been so much fascinating new work on economics, mostly critique, but also some good new ideas, really interesting stuff on social transformation, on rebuilding community, some really great deep thinking about you know, how we frame the, the way we live, the metaphors we live by, amazing work, um, above all, I think, by Jeremy Lent um, in his book, The Patterning Instinct. So we got sort of fragments of the story. We're sort of part of the way there. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the heart of the new story, and George, you, I think you, you rightly identify this, is in a reimagination around the fundamental nature of human behavior. Right. But the new story has to start with an acknowledgement that the defining feature of human beings and human society is cooperation, not selfishness. Yeah, that's right. What do you think when you see the efforts right now of some of the presidential candidates to embrace the idea of reparations, but to do it through universalist programs like a big EITC policy or some kind of big tax credit policy or for Cory Booker, you know, baby bonds as an asset building yeah. strategy? You know, I think that's a great question. I think it's it's a sign. And, and you know, I, I'd be interested in hearing what you think about this. I think we're at the kind of the end of of the age of Reagan. A certain kind of political consensus is collapsing in front of us. I don't know what will take its place, but the, the, the common sense of American politics since 1980, whether it's small government, whether it's deregulation, whether it's tax policy, uh, criminal justice policy and the like, that these things are crumbling, uh, in front of us. Um, and, um, it, it has opened up space for a different kind of thinking. Um, and so as the country's demographics are changing, we're seeing, uh, broader and bolder visions, you know, vision making, uh, happening in the public domain. So to hear, uh, 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 a nuanced conversation about reparations in the public domain is about as, uh, uh, unimaginable for someone like me who came up in the eighties, you know, as here, you know, reading in, in the, you know, on the op-ed page of, of New York Times or the Wall Street Journal about taxing marginal rates, raising tax, you know, <laughs> raising, uh, you know, the tax on, on marginal rates. So, so, so both I think reflect a shift. So the way in which 
uh, Senator Booker and others are talking about, I think is really, really interesting. Many of us remember Kennedy, the, the former uh, director of Trans-Africa, who's now now passed, um, and others bringing up the reparations debate. And now we see it uh, taking shape in terms of broad cultural, po- broad political policies to address systemic inequality. That seems to me uh, not only uh, uh, wise, but uh, something that is that is deeply plausible. Yeah, so you wrote a, a detailed economic history here. I'm wondering if you've considered an alternative history, uh, what our, our current economy might look like had uh, Milton Friedman and his uh, theories not become ascendant. What would this world look like today if we had continued more in the Keynesian uh, realm? So I think that that obviously is always a difficult question to answer, but I'd say a couple of things about it. The first is that I think it is important to understand that there were real problems uh, with the prevailing approach to economic policy by the late 1960s and the early 1970s. The Keynesians, for example, had placed a lot of faith in their ability to control inflation by raising taxes when the economy overheated. Uh, And when President Johnson's economic advisors actually walked into the Oval Office and told him it was time to raise taxes in the late 1960s, they discovered that the politics of that system were going to not work as well as they had hoped. Yeah, he was like, Uh, you know, similarly, you you know, while what's that? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And similarly, you know, like airline deregulation brought some real benefits with it. I think, you know, people are flying a lot more often. It's cheaper. So I always tell the story, you know, there's a a woman who worked uh, Jimmy Carter's commerce secretary was a woman named Juanita Kreps, and she was also a professor of economics at Duke University. And she resigned from the administration in the late 1970s because she'd become really frustrated with their inability to confront the nation's economic problems. Uh, And she also resigned as a professor at Duke University because she said she no longer knew what to teach her students. So, you know, there was, and she was a Keynesian and, and, like other Keynesians, she'd reached a point of sort of, she was at a loss. There was this real frustration uh, with the way things were. And so I, I don't think that should get lost. There's a nostalgia for that era that, you know, I, I don't think it can be as simple as just going back to the things we were doing back then. There were problems and they needed to be fixed. But with that said, I, I think that the rise of inequality has happened in large part simply because we weren't trying to prevent it. The absence from public policy of a discussion of the distribution of economic gains, uh, of making sure that we have, uh, that people have the opportunity to prosper in this country, that we're taking seriously these issues has had enormous consequences. And it's easy to to imagine an alternate history in which those issues have remained at the front, at the forefront of public policy. And we were in a different place today. Uh, And you don't even need to imagine. You can actually just look at other countries. Uh, that are struggling with the same issues of globalization and mechanization that are confronting the U.S., but still have done better on these metrics. And, and the one that I always find striking is France, because every American knows that our economy grows faster than France, and we find it you know, very validating that that's true. It, it's the victory of our economic system. But if you exclude the top 1% of people in each country and just look at income growth for the 99%, Income growth has been much faster in France for the 99%. They are doing, they have less growth overall, but they're doing a much better job of distributing it. 
you believe neoliberalism is in decline. Whenever I mention that to anybody, or if it comes up in a conversation, a guest says it, or I say it here on the air, I get emails from people saying, why do you think that? It seems like it's completely entrenched. Why do you believe neoliberalism is in decline? What signals have you seen that it is in decline? Well, one signal is that people talk about it, uh, that the, the word can be uttered. Um, I know you, you mentioned that it's not ordered very often, but like saying it at all is a huge change from like the 90s. Um, the fact that it can be viewed as some particular thing rather than just the way the world works, that's already like a chink in the armor. And I think that, um, you know, in the early days of neoliberalism, it did deliver, you know, it, it did deliver on some of its promises. Like they really did whip inflation. They really did start to deliver economic growth, even though it was subpar compared to the post-war period. Now we've reached a point where not only is neoliberalism not fulfilling its promises, but it's not even bothering to make any promises. Um, Like, you know, the Hillary Clinton slogan, America is already great. Um, It feels like she's saying, you know, I'm going to treat you like an adult. I'm going to like let you know there's no possibility of improvement. Um, another sign I think that neoliberalism is weakening is that, you know, Obamacare, which was supposedly the only possible health plan that could ever pass, um, people are realizing that its goal is legitimate, that state kind of um, provision or, or guarantee of access to health care is something that people want, but they also can see that Obamacare as it is, is not delivering it in an efficient and robust way. And this is opening up um, the possibility of something like Medicare for all. Um, The fact that this is a serious point of debate, the fact that most major Democratic candidates are are endorsing it, you know, something like that kind of actual expansion of of the welfare state was something that would have been unthinkable. It was unthinkable when Obama, um, you know, came into office with, you know, a Senate supermajority, but now it's suddenly on the table. Um, I think that basically everything that kind of undermines the sense of inevitability of neoliberalism is a sign that the system can possibly be overthrown and changed. Um, Neoliberalism, because it can't really sell itself as a positive, beneficial, um, you know, um, exciting thing, it has to rely on inertia. It has to rely on being the default option. And it, it just doesn't seem like it's the default option in people's minds as much anymore. You describe neoliberalism as a political theological paradigm, and we don't have time to go throughout your whole idea of political theology, which makes this argument about neoliberalism absolutely fascinating. We're talking to Adam Kotzko, author of Neoliberalism's Demons on the Political Theology of Late Capital. But you describe how neoliberalism as a political theological paradigm that governs every sphere of our social life, not just the state and the economy, but religion, family structure, sexual practice, gender relations, and racialization by means of a logic of demonization. How is demonization at the heart of neoliberalism, and what does that reveal about neoliberalism? Yeah, I have a kind of uh, a very particular definition of, of demonization. It goes beyond just like saying exaggerated negative things about somebody. Um, in the theological tradition, um, I see God as kind of like setting up the demons to fall. They're angels who rebelled against God, 
but God sets up these conditions that he knows they're going to rebel, and then he blames them for their rebellion. And I view this as kind of a good, like, theological image for understanding that logic of moral entrapment that I think is so central to neoliberalism, that it it makes demons of us all, it demonizes us all in the sense of setting us up to make the wrong decision and then punishing us for making that wrong decision. Um, and so we're always kind of the demons who are, like, taking the blame for the evil in the system, when in reality there's responsibility lies with the people who designed and implement the system. You even point out that you believe that uh, neoliberalism is a, uh, or I'm sorry, today's populism is a heretical variant of neoliberalism. How do you see today's populism, and and do you mean on the left and the right, uh, how do you see today's populism as a heretical variant of neoliberalism? Yeah, I don't think it's helpful to view populism as kind of uh, uh, too, as being equivalent on both sides. Um, I use it to refer only to the right-wing um, kind of alternative or so-called alternative. And basically, um, you know, we view heretics as kind of rebels against whatever theological cause they're, um, they're heretics to. But really, they're trying to purify the religion, usually. They're trying to kind of, um, they believe it's been hijacked and betrayed, and they want to get to, like, a more uh, authentic form. And often they do this by exaggerating certain features, you know, kind of, and I think that that's exactly what's happening with right-wing populism, that um, another way of putting it is that it's a parody of neoliberalism. They're actually doubling down on, on the worst features of neoliberalism uh, without um, any, you know, without any genuine alternative emerging. Um, like, Trump is basically like a dumber and more brutal version of the neoliberal order, which in my mind is clearly not uh, a viable alternative simply because it's incoherent and self-undermining. Yeah, and so that's the sense in which I view it as a heresy. How difficult is it, because you you point out this over and over in your book, that neoliberalism is a system of self-legitimation. Are you seeing any cracks in that self-legitimation of neoliberalism today? Yeah, I think the sense that the system is rigged, the sense that the kind of um, benefits are being distributed you know, arbitrarily or corruptly, that is a huge blow to the system. Um, inequality was growing profoundly in the 90s, but it never became a politically salient issue because people felt as though the basic outlines of the system were fair and the rewards were being parceled out. You know, like tech visionaries got, you know, became millionaires, but it was cool because they were doing something that was, you know, so so new and so helpful or whatever. Now, none of that seems to hold anymore. Uh, people seem to realize that it's just a situation where the rich get richer and often off of the, the exploitation of the poor and vulnerable. Um, and so I think that that is the single biggest blow to the legitimacy of the system is that if you can't believe that, um, that benefits are being distributed fairly, then the system falls apart. And this is another area where right-wing populism, I think, is kind of like a parody version of, of neoliberalism and not a real alternative because they think that, um, that benefits are being distributed unfairly in the sense that, you know, women and minorities are getting all these advantages and white people are being left behind. Obviously this is like a made up, um, complaint. Um, but it shows like 
what they want to do is set up a market where the right people will, will finally get rewarded. They want like a neoliberalism that works exactly the way that they want it to. Um, when the real, you know, the real break with neoliberalism would be to stop thinking about it in terms of competition and deserving and um, reward and punishment and to start thinking about it as collective social good. The theme of neoliberal capitalism is marketization. Uh, neoliberalism is not just a policy, it is a coherent set of economic, political, and cultural institutions that all reinforce each other, that fit together, and that are supported by a particular set of ideas. It also embodies, as Al noted, a particular form of the capital-labor relation in which capital strives to completely dominate labor. <clears throat> now, neoliberal capitalism did bring 25 years of relatively stable, if not very vigorous, economic expansion. Uh, and uh, uh, it, uh, of course, also brought an enormous increase in inequality and many other negative social economic phenomena. As long as it was promoting relatively stable expansion, it was very difficult to challenge. Uh, like every form of capitalism, its contradictions eventually caught up with it. And in 2008, that form of capitalism tends to end uh, or give rise to a, a very sudden, sharp structural crisis. Uh, the crisis of 2008 was very much like the crisis of 1929, uh, also a crisis of an earlier liberal for relatively free market form of capitalism. <clears throat> uh, uh, so I'm arguing that uh, 2008 marked the end of the phase of neoliberal capitalism when it could promote normal economic expansion. And what we've seen since then is stagnation in the US, in Europe, in Japan, throughout the, the developed capitalist world, which has now spread to the, the less developed parts of the world. A structural crisis can be resolved uh, only by major restructuring. This is true of every past structural crisis. The crisis of the late 19th century was resolved only by the rise of big business and finance capital and a more uh, active role for the state, briefly. Uh, in regulating the economy. The crisis of the 1930s was resolved by the post-war form of more statist, strong trade union capitalism. Uh, the crisis of the 70s was resolved by the neoliberal transformation. Uh, structural crisis has, in principle, three possible uh, outcomes. Continuing stagnation, if there is no restructuring, but I think it's unlikely that that uh, can continue, especially in the U.S., for very long. Uh, second is restructuring of capitalism, which is not impossible to restructure it so that it would again promote one or several decades of expansion or passing beyond capitalism. I think this is a possibility in a period such as this. Uh, restructuring within capitalism can take different forms. There's reason to believe that if capitalism is to be restructured, it will uh, be restructured in the direction of a more status form of capitalism. But there are different types of more statist forms, and we're seeing advocates of those two types now. One is a uh, nationalist, authoritarian form of capitalism, and I think Trump represents that direction of restructuring, which could form a coherent but very uh, unpleasant uh, 
system. And the second is a more social democratic form of restructuring, which I think is what Bernie Sanders, despite his use of the term socialism, is really calling for. When asked, he says, the New Deal, that's what I'm for. And it'd be uh, a lot better, but uh, it's not uh, what most of us think of as socialism. Now, uh, the, I think there's, there's no laws that can uh, uh, determine what will come next. It's the result of complex struggles among various classes and groups. Uh, but this structural crisis creates the possibility of either radical reform or even transition uh, beyond capitalism. The left has opportunities in this period. Uh, the events of 2008 to 9 significantly delegitimized capitalism. I mean, for decades, people have been told you sink or swim based on your own efforts, and all of a sudden, when the big banks were all about to go bankrupt, the taxpayers bailed them out. This had a really big shock effect. I think that's why so many people are now saying, well, if this is capitalism, maybe socialism would be better. I think that's one major reason. Second, there's a growing sense that the system is not working. It's a remarkably widespread sense among the population. And so they're looking for major change, for something different. Uh, third, there has been further intensification of exploitation and oppression, which has been going on since 1980, but it's been intensified since 2008-2009. Almost all of the additional income generated in the U.S. has gone to the top 1%. It's quite, in the last few years, it's quite remarkable. So this is a period when proposals for major change suddenly can get a serious hearing when they could not previously. Of course, there's also a danger this is fertile ground for a growing strength of uh, right-wing groups and leaders. And we're seeing this not just in the U.S., but in many places in the world, in the Philippines, in Austria, in Turkey, in many places. There are right-wing uh, authoritarian nationalist movements, parties, leaders who are emerging. Uh, structural crisis gives rise to political polarization. Uh, I think in this period, the left should boldly demand radical change because... Uh, if uh, a change that will be in the direction of bringing real benefits for the majority does not emerge, more and more people are going to be attracted to the siren song of nationalism, hatred of the other, etc. Uh, failure to build a growing left in this period, uh, which would offer a real solution to the problems people face, it would not just miss an opportunity, it would uh, lead more people, result in more people turning to the right with disastrous consequences for all of us. With neoliberalism, did we have a choice? Margaret Thatcher said there is no alternative to neoliberalism. Are we, or have we ever been offered a choice or has neoliberalism imposed upon us more than we chose neoliberalism? You know, I think in the in the 70s, um, during the various economic crises that were happening, um, you know, in terms of the oil crisis and then, you know, stagflation in the U.S., um, neoliberalism offered a solution to some of those problems, um, above all, you know, runaway inflation. Uh, that was something that the Keynesian model was having trouble um, handling. But it wasn't the only uh, solution on the table, and it was not the obviously best solution. 
Um, there were, you know, strong movements in the 70s and even going into the 80s um, to actually respond to this apparent crisis of the post-war model by, like, doubling down on the welfare state, by further restraining the role of, um, of capitalism in our lives. Um, and you can see this even as late as, you know, uh, Jesse Jackson's cam- campaign in, in 1988, um, that this idea that there was an alternative was very much alive. I view Thatcher's claim that there is no alternative less as a descriptive statement and more as like a threat. Um, there is no alternative and we will make it so that there is no alternative. I mean, by the time uh, the nineties rolled around, it seems like, uh, you know, once the Democrats had kind of come on board with the neoliberal agenda, uh, which they already kind of were because Carter was already moving in that direction. Um, that by that time there really was no alternative and there was very little uh, room for movement um, for a serious alternative. Um, it really took the, the crushing blow of the financial crisis to kind of open up the political space again. Um, and we saw that that space was taken up by very destructive forces initially in the U.S. And I want to get back to the financial crisis in a second, but just how difficult would it be for us to get back to the kind of promises that we saw from or campaign promises that we saw from Jesse Jackson, the kind of system that we had before neoliberalism, how difficult would that be to unentrench that system from our economic and political system today? It would be very difficult. I think one model that you can see uh, for the difficulty is the experience of Greece uh, when they had their uh, left-wing government installed. And, you know, they wanted to break with all of these neoliberal policies. Um, but the problem is that the kind of um, bureaucratic um, state apparatus was still so hardwired for neoliberalism that they could basically slow walk or, or undermine um, anything that the, the government did. I think that some people have an attitude of almost magical thinking about what's possible if you elect the right people. Um, you know, they're, they're such deeply ingrained, like, cultures, institutional cultures in these bureaucratic settings, the, these forms of expertise that are centered around neoliberalism. I mean, even under Trump, you know, the, the we are the resistance within in the administration, the things that they're pushing back on him on are, like, trade policy and stuff like that, like, just clearly... Um, even in this like bizarre situation, like the neoliberal zombie ideas are still kind of holding sway. Um, and I think that to really thoroughly um, replace those institutional cultures, to legitimate other forms of expertise, um, to kind of remove the stranglehold of, of the Chicago school and the economics profession, Like, this is a huge, huge task. Um, It's probably the task of a generation, not the task of a single election. Of course, election results are important, and maintaining that kind of momentum and enthusiasm is indispensable. But realistically, this is something that's going to take a generation uh, to dig our way back out of. You blame the 2008 global financial crisis on neoliberalism. If neoliberalism was responsible, why hasn't it been held accountable? Why continue pursuing neoliberalism? Have we simply decided or realized neoliberalism leads to bubbles and bursts and we're fine with that? We're totally fine with the ups and downs of neoliberalism? 
I mean, obviously, we, in the broad sense of people in general, are not fine with that. But the people who actually run the world seem to be. I remember a quote from Jamie Dimon, the, the CEO of Chase, who somebody asked him, you know, what is a financial crisis? And he said, it's something that happens every five years or so. So the powers that be are very comfortable with the cycle of bubbles and bursts. And, okay, in terms of why didn't we try something different? Why wasn't neoliberalism held accountable? Who is there to hold them accountable? They are in control of institutional power globally, uh, locally. Um, you know, there is no somehow this outside other space that could like hold them accountable. Um, both parties are are thoroughly saturated with this ideology. In a, on a certain real level, you just can't vote against it. Even people who thought they were voting against it with Trump were not, in fact, voting against it. Um, I think he would have been voting against it um, with Sanders, but only in part, because in order to get anything done, he would need the cooperation of the still largely neoliberal Democratic Party. I think if Thatcher used there is no alternative as a threat, over time it did essentially become true. And the only way to respond to the neoliberal crisis is by further doubling down on neoliberalism. Um, and like basically, I, I know this is kind of an unpopular position, but I think that within the terms of the neoliberal order, that the bailouts really were the only solution that could have worked in the kind of expeditious manner that was needed to prevent, like, you know, a truly depression level event. Um, they did quote the right thing um, in that setting, but it's just so devastating and demoralizing to think that that should be the right thing or that we've come to such a pass that that is the only answer. And this is why I think, you know, it's, it's necessary to, to kind of keep building up these new forms of expertise to um, try to build new institutional cultures in addition to kind of electoral politics so that when the next crisis comes, which is inevitable, you know, even Jamie Dimon thinks so, that when it comes, there will be somebody credible who has another answer. We've just heard clips today, starting with Pitchfork Economics in two parts, talking with George Monbio about how neoliberalism happened. On the Media spoke with Jane McAlevey about the thread of effective labor organizing from FDR to today. Diazor Klein Show spoke with Eddie Cloud Jr. about the evidence he sees pointing toward the end of the Reagan era. Pitchfork Economics also spoke with Benjamin Applebaum about the problems with Keynesian economics of the New Deal era that hit a political hurdle when it was time to raise taxes. David Kotz described the coming end of neoliberalism and why it's so important for us to be ready. And finally, we just heard This Is Hell in two parts, speaking with Adam Kotzko, who laid out some of the dynamics of the birth of neoliberalism and what it will take to bring it to an end. Members will hear about the origin of what we know today as trickle-down economics. It turns out it hilariously stems from literal manure, and it could justifiably be called 
called horse shit economics or eat shit economics, which is all pretty great. So to hear that and all of our bonus content, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay. It's Jesse from Boston. I just wanted to call to express my solidarity with you and uh, anyone else who struggles with seasonal depression. I also struggle with it, especially living in Massachusetts. It's pretty cloudy and it can feel isolating. But uh, right now there is a global movement of leftists and that gives me some hope that even when my own will to fight is diminished that if I invest a tiny bit of hope and some courage in my peers that we together are powerful and we can overcome particularly gruesome periods of misery and hardship through our shared experience and the strength of that collective so I appreciate the work you do and I certainly appreciate your honesty man take care This is Aaron from Philly, currently driving through the wilds of northwestern New Jersey. And I just finished up episode 318, and, uh, you know, the, I guess you would call it the postscript to the show, the outro, your comments, whatever. First of all, thanks. Thanks for being upfront about how you're feeling and that you had to take a break and why you had to take a break while you were recording. You know, I've been feeling it harder than usual this year, too. I I don't know if I specifically have seasonal affective disorder, but I just feel like this November has been harder than usual, and I don't know why. I think the daylight savings time change hit harder than usual, going so abruptly from it's dark at 5.30 to it's dark at 4.30, just uh it really messed with me this year and i've i've noticed that my emotional state has been less good than usual and i think it may also be partly due to you know just affected by everything around me who isn't so uh yeah anyway i just wanted to say that uh i feel it too and thanks for being up front and you're not alone because I'm feeling that way and it feels good to know that I'm not alone and other people out there are feeling just feeling the season really hard this year so uh, thanks for putting that out there and uh, thanks for putting the show out there every week and really appreciate it stay awesome Hey, Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut calling in regarding your sunshine policy and your rerun of episode 1228. Hey, good for you for getting out there in the sunshine and so forth. And I just wanted to follow up as as listeners. You know, I feel like I'm trying to catch up and I can't take a break. But your sunshine policy, your your intro sparked me. And so I am going to pause on listening for the day and I'm going to put on some Imagine Dragons and I'm going to rock and roll on my trip instead of listening to you 
and the patriarchy, and I will catch up with that on the next cloudy day, which, um, I don't know, it's cloudy day today too, so that really doesn't help. But anyway, so I'm inspired, and I'm going to go rock out and deal with politics and life another time. So thanks for giving me permission to do that as well. And so I'll be a little bit further behind, but so what? Stay awesome. Hi, Jay. This is Linda from New Jersey, my second ever call. After listening to the end of your last show comments, I, as a nurse and mother, uh, feel compelled to respond. First, although the days are a bit shorter after Daylight Savings Time ends in November, such a great time to enjoy those walks on crisp fall days. I've been enjoying them, and I would encourage. Also, I've been posting and... I have been talking up your show to lots and lots of people. So I have no confirmations, but I'm hopeful that some new members based on some conversation. That would be nice. Finally, speaking for myself and presumably for your loyal listeners, we very much value the work you do and appreciate your dedication. And just want to say, hang in there. Okay? You take care. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And really, thanks again to everyone who called and had very nice things to say. Also to everyone who emailed and had very nice things to say. I really appreciate it. My update on that is good news. Um, I I can say very, uh, very clearly that that Friday late afternoon evening when I recorded the last final comment section was clearly my low point. I mean, hopefully that remains the case that that is the the lowest point and I'm sort of bouncing back from there. Um, But uh, (laughs) Having that experience, it, it was. Um, I, I thought about this that evening in the moment. I thought this feels like ha- having had uh, food poisoning and throwing up. Like you feel so much. Like it's not a good feeling to go through that process, but you feel a lot better on the other side. I came out of that uh, that recording session and thought, like, yeah, things don't feel great, but. I think they already feel better. Like just having talked about it, as I said, like taking a break because I needed to cry for no reason. It was, you know, it was like a, it really, it was, it was a, it was an emotional vomit. I just needed to uh, get something out of my system. And, you know, as I said, like darkness does weird things to our brain chemistry and all of that. Like, you know, I, I can tell the difference between that, that sort of circumstantial depression that I think, you know, a lot of people are getting these days, the loneliness syndrome, all of those that tie into how our society is structured. And we've been talking about that a lot. And the brain chemistry stuff, like when, when the brain goes and does weird stuff, like you can it's you have a little bit of an out-of-body experience and just look at yourself and be like, what is going on? Like, why would I feel like this? And, and it's just because something has gone wonky. And whatever that was, having, you know, just having a good, healthy cry for a minute, um, I, th- I think, honestly, like, 
flipped another switch and I'm not like hundred percent normal or anything, but, uh, it's, it's not like that day anymore. And, um, and, and then just one last note on the chemistry versus social circumstance uh, factor. So it just happened to be that a friend was going to come visit this past weekend. And Amanda asked, like, should we tell him not to come? Like, do you need a, a weekend to rest? And knowing how all this stuff works, I said, no, no, no. I'm really looking forward to them coming. I think this might be exactly what I need right now. I think I will feel better for having social interactions and getting out of the house and doing stuff that that wouldn't be the same if I just went for a walk on my own. I, I think I, I told the brief story that, you know, on, on my first sunshine policy day, I went for a walk in the park and felt completely numb. It didn't help. It, you know, it, it didn't make me feel that much better. But having a friend visit was transformative. So, yeah, I I think that just goes to bolster the point that people like Johan Hari makes, you know, in his book, Lost Connections. We've been hearing him on the show recently that on one hand, yes, of course, there is a brain chemistry aspect to depression. But what we overlook so often is the social circumstances that can lead people to loneliness and depression. And so I just I felt like I lived through a sort of microcosm of that. I felt the chemistry go out of whack and maybe felt it sort of click back into place or a slightly better place. And then right afterward, had a social circumstance experience that, you know, helped move things in in a more positive direction as well. So I'm glad to be able to have a positive update for you. And and of course, selfishly, I'm glad to be feeling a little bit better, at least for now. Uh, So if you want to comment on that or anything else, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And now to wrap up with today's news by Limerick. I'm sure you've heard that uh, the president went to Walter Reed Hospital. It wasn't on his official schedule. It's very unclear how well or unwell he is. He was sort of missing over the weekend. There was a lot of suspicion that, you know, he was in real bad shape. Anyway, speculation continues. And at Liberix has this to say on the issue. I hope that the president's well, sincerely, in case you can't tell. For if he is not, he won't get to rot for years in a six by eight cell.